0: When we were first uh, playing together, me and Carlo, I call him, um, we he was a bit like kind of scratchy and he was like in a bad mood because he hadn't been played in, in a while. And I kind of had to fight with him and then sort of soften him. I remember my, my teacher at Juilliard, the great Harvey Shapiro, he said, a cello's like your dog. You got to treat him right. Otherwise, you know, he'll bite you.
1: Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh, and in 2016, I traveled to Greensboro, North Carolina to attend a very special concert sponsored by the Greensboro Symphony Orchestra. The concert featured violinist Pincus Zuckerman and his wife, award-winning cellist, Amanda Forsyth. After the concert, I sat down with Amanda and asked her to tell me her story, including how she fell in love with the cello what she looks for in a cello, and how she met and married Pincus Zuckerman. Here now is that story.
0: I'm Amanda Forsyth, and I'm a cellist, and I have been since I was two years old. Uh, Born in South Africa in Cape Town, my father um, was a, well, when I was born, he was already a composer, but before that he was a trombonist, before that he was a, a failed pianist, in his words. Malcolm Forsyth was his name, um, and a painter before that, and also a professional soccer player goalie in South Africa. So he came from a Presbyterian family, in um, and they, he grew up in Pietermaritzburg, Natal. And um, the tradition was he either played rugby or soccer. And so he said he played soccer because it wasn't as rough. <laughs> And then he began to play the piano just from his own interest. And he obviously has extreme talent in the artistic way, being a painter, and I have all his paintings. Um, He didn't really like himself as a painter, and he thought he was a bad pianist. So he began playing trombone at age 21. Um, His father was the deputy mayor in Peter Maritzburg and wanted my dad to work in the office, uh, which he grudgingly did for as little time as possible, (laughs) at which point he did get his his music degree from the University of Cape Town and landed the principal trombone position in the Cape Town Symphony. So he was kind of almost self-taught, but then he he got formal training after that. But his passion was that this is what he had to do, and there was just no question that he wouldn't, and he was not going to be working in an office. (laughs) Did he have perfect pitch, do you think? Uh, No, he did not have perfect pitch, but perfect relative pitch, yes. Yes, Which was the trombone. right? Right. Yeah. On the trombone, and I, yeah, that's true. If you give him one note, he could sing all the other. He knew what everything else was, whereas I can just tell you the note without having a background note. So that's perfect pitch. Ah. Um, so
1: When did you discover you have that? I know it's getting aside from Oh, the no, I,
0: I mean, I think my dad discovered when I was quite young. He was, he was a bit jealous of that, actually. <laughs> um, natural. I mean, actually, sometimes perfect pitch is a detrimental thing to have because... Um, you're so used to things being completely in tune at 441 or 440 A, that um, things such as uh, the new HIP, um, the HIP program. What do they HIP? What do they call it? Historically informed practice. That's what they call it in Australia, actually, not the Baroque practice in North America. They say so when they put down the A to 430, whatever it is, 438. It's quite. It's very upsetting.
1: But aren't a lot of modern orchestras now moving the pitch up?
0: Well, in Europe, the t- pitch is higher, um, and violinists tend to be higher. So since I play with a violinist most of the time, I tend to be now higher. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. And do you like that, or are you finding I do. That-
0: you know, I feel like if you're a bit sharper, you, it's kind of happier and brighter. And as a cellist, I'm lower than a violin all the time. So quite often, uh, speaking of balance in a performance, a performance. Um, when the cello and violin are together with an orchestra, which is huge, you hear the violin because it's up in the stratosphere, and it's it always cuts through. And the cello, if we're down in the mid-range, uh, same as a viola, you wouldn't hear, it doesn't cut through. So I feel like if the pitch is a little bit higher, maybe it helps. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so your dad was the first in the family mm-hmm. that really turned to music, yeah, and what was the family's history before that? How did they get to South Africa? Does this go way back?
0: Way back in South Africa, Forsyth being a Scottish name, um, the Forsyth tailors. You can still see the plaques in Peter Maritzburg, actually, in the in the sidewalk of where the stores were. And I do, I have seen Forsyth tailored shirts on the internet recently, and I'm it must be our family because that was the family from way back, but certainly. Um, very many generations were not uh, the tailors. <laughs> Definitely uh-huh. not musicians. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> yeah, and so um, so let, tell me your story now. How did? When was the moment, I uh, guess, your father suddenly discovered you had talent?
0: Well, no, actually it was kind of a fluke because we left South Africa when I was uh, two, just under two. Um, my dad wanted to move to Canada. I asked him later, as a, as a small girl... Daddy, why do we go to Canada? He said, well, it's the safest place in the world. And that was very comforting to me as a kid, having been at Bastille Eve riots in Paris, trying to get back to Canada and, oh, Daddy, now we're never going to, it's so unsafe everywhere except for Canada. So i that's what I really truly believed. Um, yeah, and the violence in South Africa that I saw also. I was wondering, was he girl. reacting
1: to that too? Absolutely. Where things you you know, were going. Pre-apartheid and everything. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. So we went to Canada, and they had just started in Edmonton, Alberta. Well, actually, we moved to Toronto, and he worked in the record store there and um, had no money um, and did trombone clinics at high schools on occasion. And then he got a job as as uh, the trombone teacher and I think composition teacher at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. He applied for that. So we went to Edmonton. And they had just started the Suzuki method school of cello. Suzuki is a common method for violin, and I think they do it for piano, but it's mostly the little kids with the violins. And they had just Dr. Suzuki had just started um, the same method for cello, which, by the way, is a viola upside down with an N pin because we're tiny. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's the cello pitches A D G C, but one octave higher because it's a viola. So we sat on little milk stools, and and, and so the, the person that hired my father said, oh, Mandy's the same age as my daughter, and she's going to start cello now, so why don't you put her in? So that's how that happened.
1: <laughs> so it could have been violin, but it just mm-hmm. turned out to be the friend. Yeah.
0: In fact, this man was a violinist, and he put his daughter in cello, and then we became best friends, <laughs> little cellists.
1: Well, it brings up a question I always love to explore just because of my own interest, and that's the the role of destiny or fate or Mm -hmm. serendipity. Do you think that was uh, meant to be then? This was the instrument, or is it just you started on it and that's what it's been?
0: Well, no, I definitely had an affinity and a natural, well, once we got off, got away with... um, you know, undoing our bows and using them as fishing lines. And, you know, I mean, we're, we're two and a half, so <laughs> I'm sure we weren't really paying attention. But I had a very, since I was a baby, I always sang. My father always sang nursery rhymes to me, and I always memorized them. Um, and we always sang. It was just part of my world. And so then I had a cello to sing through. It was it's just a, another extension. Mm. So it was definitely inevitable. I gave it up, you know, in when I was about... 10 because my dad said well you know you have to do it if you really want to do it then you have to really concentrate and do it properly but it's up to you you can always work at aW that's what he said to me <laughs> so I did actually give it up just to see what would happen at aW yeah no I didn't work at aW <laughs> <laughs> but um, I gave it up for maybe two years I just and he didn't say anything I mean he was a prolific composer he was playing performing writing um i i still went to all the concerts blah 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 i wanted to be so called normal um compared to the other kids it was not normal i feel like these days it's a little bit more normal i don't i don't know if that's true whether it means more kids are, are taking up an instrument when they're in school but i was very serious about it after that after the giving up period and then i went to study in in london england with Uh, William Pleath, who was Jacqueline Dupre's teacher. And so by that point, I was just completely, you know, obsessed with being really proper.
1: (laughs) Tell me the day you came back to it.
0: Um, I don't remember that day, but I I kind of remember that the case, the cello was in a soft case in a cupboard. And it was there for a while. And I remembered it was just, it wasn't any particular occasion. It wasn't that I'd heard a cellist play or anything. It was just, Probably being an only child, I mean, I had my Dalmatian dogs, which were my siblings, (laughs) and I had my dolls, and I wasn't allowed to um, waste time. This was a big thing in my upbringing. My father didn't want me to waste time or sleep in because there's lots to do. So sometimes I... Is this
1: Scottish or something? Yeah, I think
0: it's the Presbyterian in him, (laughs) which I teased him about a lot. Get up, there's lots to do. I'm like, get up, what do I do? (laughs) Clean up, do chores. Um, So that was something that I would, to do. (laughs) That's what I had to do, to practice the cello.
1: And he hadn't sold it, which is saying something. He could have thought you were uninterested and Mm -hmm. sold it, but it was in the closet waiting.
0: Yeah, it wasn't a valuable cello. I think it was a a half size, actually. And because, that was very crucial, actually, the size of cello, because I had not played it. For whatever, however long that was, two years, and um, I had grown, so actually the half size was too small for me. But he didn't really, we didn't really pay attention to it. And then I went to London to study. Um, I skipped over the three quarter size because by that time the half size was much too small, but the three quarter size was almost too small as well. So I commissioned a, a German American maker, David Weeby, who lives in Nebraska to make me a seven-eighths size cello. And um, I think I was 13 then. That was, I. 1977 was the year of number one cello. David Weeby number one, it says on the label on the inside of the cello, because it was the first one he made in America. And he had been in Germany before.
1: How'd you find out about him?
0: Uh, my cello teacher, Claude Kennison in Edmonton, uh, knew of him, I don't know why, but he came to hear me play some recitals, the maker, and um, my teacher just said, well, we should get you a cello now. Let's get you a proper cello, a good cello. So in
1: the violin world, the 7 eighths violins used to be called ladies' violins. Oh, is that right? still are. I don't know. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so, but this is, yeah, I wouldn't have thought, but sure, there would be a uh, 7th-8th cello. So how long did you play that one?
0: Well, I played it till 1985 when I got my, no, no, that's not right, 1977, was my number one cello. And then I got him to make me number 13 because I had him make me a full size, which I still own. And the year of that is 83, I think. Is that right? I think it is. So I went to Juilliard in 85 and I already had that cello. Oh, it's 81. That's what it was. 1981 was number 13 cello. And he's made about hundreds now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I've heard his name
0: His wonderful maker yeah. And actually number two cello was Leonard Rose's Because I played for Leonard Rose in Canada With my number one cello And he heard, it, heard me play and he says Well, you have to come and study with me at Juilliard And I said, okay And then he says, and this cello is wonderful And he got on the phone right then and there and ordered it And so he had number two
1: <laughs> That's nice, yeah. yeah, good for the maker Yeah Let's listen to Amanda perform a duet for violin and cello composed by Reinhold Gliere at the Tanglewood Music Center in 2020, with her husband Pincus Zuckerman on violin <music> things I was thinking about last night when you were performing was uh, something that was said to me about the physical problems that come with playing the cello, that it's a very demanding instrument and causes a lot of physical ailments and things. Have you run into that at all?
0: Um, Well, I do have a ganglion cyst in my left wrist, which is controllable, and I don't know where it comes from. I know a lot of string players have it. It, It's very, um, it gets stiff and I have to be careful when I'm in the gym to not... Well, I can't do yoga, for example, because I can't uh, bend the wrist and lean on it like that. And a little bursitis, oh, it's not my shoulder, it's my elbow. (laughs) It just comes from use. But actually, the wrist thing, we think, came from how I pick up my cello in the case. Because it always goes on my left shoulder with the strap, and then I move it to both shoulders with the straps in airports and things. But for short hauls, like just out of the car, you know, to the hall, I just pick it up. And it stresses the wrist. So now I actually, I'm very careful. I actually do a squat, put the strap on my shoulder and stand up, as opposed to just yanking it all with my left wrist, because I'll pay for it later.
1: <laughs> do you know what the weight of a cello in the kind of case you yeah, have? it's
0: eight kilograms. I know oh. this from airports. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> and do you have to buy a seat for it?
0: Yeah, we buy a seat for the cello. And
1: it does sit next to you?
0: It does. Has to by law.
1: That's good. In in uh, Ireland, Ryanair has caused this great controversy where they've been charging people for their instruments, violins, yeah, fiddles, yeah. and still put them in luggage. They won't let you bring them on the plane, and yet you're you're paying a seat for it.
0: Then don't fly Ryanair.
1: No, I don't think so. I wrote them a letter. I did.
0: <laughs> no, there's. Uh, oh, it goes in and out all the time. Air Canada had this thing about um, violas recently. Like, they'd really know the difference with a viola or a balalaika or a saxophone. I mean, come on. They're not going to know. Why are they saying no violas? (laughs) the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And it happened to be on our gala uh, concert that the news came out about this. And this was a gala concert in Ottawa in Canada in the National Arts Centre. And um, our big fundraiser and our principal violist happened to be at the Air Canada table at the gala. I said, Jethro, talk to them immediately. And he had them all on their cell phones that night during the dinner. And it, the next morning it was lifted, this stupid no viola thing on Air Canada. <laughs> and then last a uh, few days ago, a friend of mine um, posted on Facebook something about WestJet and his cello wasn't allowed on. And, and I, I wrote to him, I said, no, cellos have never been allowed on WestJet. I had a concert in Calgary. I had a little dog, I had a little Maltese I traveled with as well. Could I make my life even more difficult, Amanda? Really. Um, But so I had to send my husband home on Air Canada with the cello, and I had to fly WestJet with the dog, because at that point Air Canada decided no dogs underneath your seat, even though you pay $100. And WestJet never took cellos. So if I hadn't had another person with me, I would have been, what do I do? (laughs) So yes, it's a problem for traveling as a cellist. And even when you do buy the seat, it's just endless. You know, when I travel in an airport without a cello, I think, oh, everyone's, no one's looking at me. No one's giving me any trouble. Everyone's being so nice to me. I don't feel like a criminal for a change. <laughs> I got a seat. I bought the seat. Yes, I have the seat. Yes, I have the seat. Ugh! It fits in it. Give me the seatbelt extension. Give me the net. I don't care. I know all the rules of all airlines. So it's just nice once in a while not to have a cello in the airport. <laughs> And then it probably uh, leads to all
1: kinds of conversations sometimes, except that sometimes maybe you just don't want the conversation at that point. No, I do not. (laughs) And So they're going to ask you all about the cello. No,
0: not interested. Uh I used to play the clarinet. That's nice. (laughs) Headphones on, sunglasses. I don't care.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, there's probably a lot of stories, and uh, why don't we get that one story that I, I'm interested in? Tell mm-hmm. me your courtship story. Okay.
0: Well, my husband and I now have been together for 18 years. Pinkus Zuckerman, he's quite a good violinist, I think. Um, I wouldn't put up with not a very good violinist, I don't think. <laughs> uh, we met actually um, in Calgary, where where I was principal cello for seven years. And just he's just a... Great fun guy, very personable, and of course he's the great Pinkus Zerkman as well. So there's the stigma that goes with that. So he he came to play Beethoven concerto uh, with no conductor, just he conducting from the violin, which is uh, very amazing because that's a huge piece. It's not a Mozart. It's it's the Beethoven. So and and I was I found it very easy to play with him to lead my section to lead this the lower strings. Um, just with his body movements, it was very, very clear, like we were playing chamber music. So, um, of course, I was, you know, really enthused and all excited musically, and and we just talked. And anyway, so years later, I was up for the job in Ottawa as principal cello. And my trial week was Pincus conducting. And... I said, well, I'm not sure. I think I'm getting this job. He said, oh, that's great. You really deserve it. And by the way, I'm going to be the music director here. I said, oh, really? And so it was kind of synonymous. And talk about serendipity. He had decided back in Calgary, he said, oh, that's the girl for me. Uh, but he was still married to someone else. <laughs> and um, by the time he got to Ottawa, he was you know, almost divorced, I guess. And, um, but I had no idea, none whatsoever. We just hit it off as musicians, friends, talking. um, And um, let's see then what happened. We played Brahms Sextet. That pretty much. My mother told me, who, by the way, lives in Australia. She says, "Um, Amanda, you better be careful. I said, oh, mom, what are you talking about? She says, well, you've mentioned him quite a few times. You've even told me the color of his eyes. I said, I had. I did. She says, yeah, you know, he's not quite divorced yet. I'm like, Oh, for God's sake, he's much too old for me, mother. Um, Don't be ridiculous. I'm just musically, you know, she says, No, 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 no. You were saying that um you didn't want to be at the other end of the table, because he was at the other end. And it was being more fun where he was, because I was dating someone else. <laughs> so I said, Oh, my goodness, my, that's my mother. And she's already picked up on that. So but it was Pincus's master plan. So he says, so then, uh, some we just started to play together, and it was just so exciting for me. Um, uh, it was like having the be all and end all right in my face that I could learn every moment from, and and imitate, and and play into his sound. And so it was just a great uh, partnership, and the chamber music was just un- unbelievable. It's actually when I speak about this right now, when I'm telling you my head is kind of spinning a little bit cuz i think cuz i i hear my voice talking but i'm thinking so much you know about the emotion of it so and we just started playing more and more together as we were as we were involved and then i couldn't think of anything better
1: <laughs> yeah uh, it was a real pleasure watching you last night mm-hmm. Just the way you play together. I'm sure many people have said that. Mm-hmm. And I could see when you came out, you, you were not serious, but you had a somber sort of approach. And, mm-hmm. and then just watching over the time of the, of the concert, you got more excited. Yeah. I think you enjoyed the, uh, the orchestra last yeah. night. Yeah, well,
0: we had a great time. Yeah. Um,
1: and I love that of how the spirit comes into us. And, mm-hmm. you know, we don't have a control over that. Or who we're going to fall in love with, mm-hmm. and we're just uh, lucky if we say yes.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because
1: there's many things they'll say no.
0: Yeah,
1: all kinds of things, and uh, you make a moment, and you're just like, I don't, I don't well, know. Well, there's this a means. moment
0: in the Brahms double where I, I just told Dima yesterday, after our concert, I said I always get goosebumps, and that's Brahms. That's not me. That's not the cello. That's Brahms, and I, I'm the vehicle for Brahms at that. Moment, well, the whole time I play whatever composer it is, I'm the vehicle for their music. It should be that way, not me using their music for me. However, I do get the satisfaction when I get the goosebumps (laughs) that Brahms came through that I, that as a performer, I was able to have that much emotion for this particular phrase. And hopefully he, you know, is aware of it. All the performers that play his music, you know.
1: Well, we talked about that. We had that quite conversation about time, the nature of time, and uh, you know, as you get into people understanding the real nature of time through quantum mechanics and mm-hmm. the mathematics and so forth and relativity, you could make the case that these people are not dead and gone. Right and that when we do play this music of theirs, that came from their souls, that they come into the present moment.
0: Well, my father, Malcolm Forsyth, his music that I play a lot, his cello concerto, uh, which is called Electra Rising, and he wrote that for me, um, and he's written many pieces for me throughout my you know younger years that I still play. I recently had a homecoming tour in South Africa um, a couple of years ago where I went to play his cello concerto, And it was his dream that we would go together, but he passed away. So two years after he passed away, I I was able to go to South Africa in his memory and and play all of the things he'd written for me. But you can imagine my emotion anyway, being there without him, having just lost him. But I don't this is probably too much of a crazy story, but there um, there was a psychic woman in Sydney, Australia who many years ago left a note for Pincus backstage at the Sydney Opera House after his concert saying, "Um, you don't know me, but in about two years, there's going to be a snowstorm in Paris and you're supposed to drive, but you should definitely not drive. There's going to be too many accidents, so you should fly. So he's like, well, that's a bit wacky. Um, Cut to two years later, there was a storm and it went ding. And he said, you know what, I'm not going to drive. I mean, why, why tempt it? I was told not to, so I'm not going to. And guess what? There were a lot of accidents. So years later, I met her in Sydney, and she came to read for us. I mean, I'm not doing that very often. So, um, And she told me about the guides that we're watching, and, and it gets very noisy because they want to tell me things through her. And um, But after my dad passed away, she came in and said, um, well, you'll notice that he's there. He'll appear as some other creature that's going to be you'll notice after a few times. So what happened in South Africa was I was getting ready for the first concert and I was doing my hair or something. And this enormous fly in my hotel room was swirling around. I was like, well, that's annoying. Like, how can there be this? The windows don't even open this hotel. Why is this huge blowfly in my room? (laughs) It wasn't here yesterday. And it sort of circled around my head and then, like grazed my cheek. And I thought, well, that's just ridiculous. Anyway, forgot all about it and played the concert. And there was a fly there. And it was around my my cello on the stage. And at that moment, I said to myself, that was dad. He kissed me before the concert. And every concert I played in South Africa, there was a fly. I'm not even kidding, on stage. Right. We played the Archduke trio Beethoven, and my pianist said, I, I didn't want to mention it, she only told me when we got home, and she said, um, during the slow movement of the Archduke, uh, a fly was on my keyboard. I said, well, it's my dad. <laughs> so whether you see it in, in a, as, a, as a thing or something, yeah. you know, Brahms was there, Chopin was there, they're all there.
1: Well, I, that's the universe I live in. I'm very open to these ideas. Mm. I, I think it would be you know foolish to say we can explain it in some linear rational way, but I I think that as art, most artists are drawn to the art in the hopes that these things happen in some fashion. Yeah. And those moments, you know, we oh, really? kind of live for them mm-hmm. because it, it's a kind of a hard gig in a lot of other <laughs> ways. I mean, it may look good when you come on stage and it's kind of glamorous and all the lights are on, yeah. but you know that's not. Picking up it's the cello at the airport, each, yeah. yeah, right, right, and dealing with all that. Uh, so, what what instrument are you playing now? What you're telling me about your—that's
0: a great story, actually. So, I had my David Weeby cello, and I would get reviews over the years when I played concerts, and they said, "Oh, she must have this great Italian instrument." And I always would t- tell him, oh, "We fooled them again," because <laughs> he's such a great maker, and it had a very, um, very interesting sound that cello. Um, Pincus said to me, you know, we're playing more together now. It's time you get a really important Italian instrument. I said, really? But I've been doing fine with my weeby. <laughs> and so I wasn't really convinced, although I know, you know, most performers that perform a lot are playing on old instruments. But actually, that's not true because now a lot lot more are playing on modern instruments again. So now I think it's more a little bit more even. But anyway, so when I wasn't looking... I was brought this Carlo Giuseppe Testore cello uh, made in 1699 and someone brought it to me in Canada, one of the luthiers, and said that various people had said, this is a really great cello, you should show it to Amanda. I said, who are these people? Like old teachers of mine or other cellists. This is a really big, powerful cello that would suit Amanda. So I was like, oh my God, I don't want to buy a cello. I, you know, I wasn't thinking of it at the time. Then... When Pinkus said, you know, you should start looking. So I started looking. And then (laughs) I went here and there in Chicago and New York and borrowed cellos and gafrillers and guadagninis and, I mean, great cellos. And I was just not convinced by any of them. And so, I mean, I played that one for a week. I played in New York on that one. I was just like not convinced. I got one in Vienna. It was was amazing. Um, And then I sort of went ding in my head and said, wait, where's that? Cello that was brought to me once, so I tracked it down. It was, it was where it was in Ann Arbor, at Shar Fine Instruments, um, which was this cello was co-owned by Charles Beer in London of Beer Violins and the Shar Fine Instruments, which I believe is now closed. Now it's just Shar, which was started by Charlie Avsharian, which is the Shar catalog for the strings and everything that you buy.
1: We, we interviewed his brother, Michael.
0: Oh, great. Yeah, and great. it was a
1: wonderful interview.
0: And Charlie's a good friend of Pincus's from way back, from Meadowmount. So, I've not
1: met Charlie. He was in China when we— oh, I went really? to Ann Arbor, and, but uh, Michael's his brother, and I guess you might know him. And, I
0: haven't met Michael.
1: Oh, he's no. a, what a wonderful person.
0: Fantastic. Well, Jeff Holmes was the luthier who was— Taking care of this cello, so then I got it again, and and then we kind of now, fell let me in interrupt
1: love. here. So the first time it was brought to you, did you try it? Did you? Oh play yeah, it?
0: but just in a room, you know, for an hour. I thought, yeah, it's oh, good, it's good, but, but I didn't
1: speak to you at that time. Well, I wasn't
0: thinking of it, you know. Is it was, it was, I wasn't really, I was kind of almost irritated that someone wanted to sell me. You know, I felt like they were being salespeople, and um, well, they are because that's their business. <laughs> they are supposed to be, but I was, I wasn't in. I wasn't open. So then when I had seen all these other cellos and played them, I was like, wait, 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 let's look at that testory again. And um, then he came back to me, and we've been inseparable. So I've had that cello now for about 10 years.
1: And that's what you played last night? Yeah. It was lovely.
0: And He's a big beast. He's very, um, takes a lot of power. Uh, I'm I'm a strong player, so I am able, I need... A, a big instrument that I can really dig into. Um, and so when, when we were first uh, playing together, me and Carlo, I call him, um, we he was a bit like kind of scratchy and he was like in a bad mood because he hadn't been played in, in a while. And I kind of had to fight with him and then sort of soften him. I remember my, my teacher at Juilliard, the great Harvey Shapiro, he said, a cello's like your dog. You got to treat him right. Otherwise, you know, he'll bite you.
1: <laughs> and he told you with that accent. Yeah.
0: It's <laughs> great. It's actually on a film somewhere, which is very nice. <laughs> your cellos like your dog. <laughs> and it's true. Now, so, are
1: some cellos, I've picked this up in some of the conversations, mm-hmm. that some cellos are just people just perceive them as feminine and others as masculine. Is that true?
0: Well, we would almost use like um, vanilla and chocolate. So mm. vanilla could be perceived as feminine, and chocolate is male. I don't know. I mean, I'm a female, I'm, and I've got my knees wrapped around a cello. So as far as I'm concerned, he's a, he's a male. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also, it's a male maker. So that's why I nicknamed him Carlo for Ch- Carlo Giuseppe Testore. But the sound the that, that Pincus plays with is chocolate, even though his violin is female to him, but it still sounds chocolate.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's a Guarneri? Or?
0: Yes, this yeah. is Del Gesù, 1742.
1: Del yeah, yeah, exactly. So these two instruments, because uh, you have that issue too. Not only the instrument that you like to play, mm-hmm. it works for you, but how does it blend with with uh, Pinkus's instrument? And did you know when you started playing it right away? Did he work with you, or you, you acquired this before you were with? Uh,
0: no, we were together. He was the one you, that said I needed an important exactly. Italian instrument. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. So, um, yeah. So well, it was the first
1: to. time you played them together. Just tell me that experience. Is it memorable or is it just, we just kinda of worked into it?
0: I don't remember the actual first time.
1: did you said the instrument had a kind you had to work with the instrument. Yeah, I Anyhow. remember
0: playing It Wasn't magic concerto. right off the It was magic, but it had some areas in the on the instrument which were um not smoothed over, shall we say. And, you know, experimenting with different strings, different adjustment of the soundpost. And also we were touring in in cold Canada with the orchestra, and I was really babying this cello. I mean, carrying it and very careful. But every time it was cold or dry, all the pegs would fall out every time I opened up the case. Mm -hmm. I never bumped it. I didn't have it outside, you know, just for a brief moment. And and it would just like the pegs the big the major pegs would come out I mean the the bridge fall off and so then every time that happened it was even more raspy when I put the strings back on and the bridge and it sounded like really like really raspy because it's very uncomfortable but um we seem to have come to an understanding (laughs) so it's also the way you approach how you how you produce the sound with your bow and your and your body and um it gets used to it. It gets used to the, your touch, like a fountain pen. Mm. You know, you're not supposed to use other people's fountain pens.
1: I've heard that, yeah.
0: My father told me, because he was writing with the, you know, the music, and I had to have my own nib, because you have your own pressure and angle, so you would, other, you would wear down the side of the fountain pen. So that's why so when, when people hand me their fountain pen to sign something, I'm like, no, 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 I can't use your fountain pen. <laughs> that's your fountain pen. It has your pressure, and it would become scratchy. So,
1: um, In our tradition of fiddling, Mm -hmm. it's quite common to uh, change your tunings.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: They'll bring up the the two lower strings of full pitch. Mm -hmm. So you've got um, uh, A, E, A, E, Mm -hmm. and you get this bagpipe droney sound. You play in the key of A or in a modal key, and it it can be quite uh, powerful. Mm -hmm. And again, this goes back to a time when you had no amplification. You're playing for square dances, Mm -hmm. so you're trying to get all the volume you can get, Right. But I have gotten to the point where I will not retune my violin that I'm very fond of. I, I think it puts it into shock.
2: Yeah, And so I, true.
1: I keep looking for that second violin. Now I have one that I'm content to put in some of the odder tunings. Mm-hmm. And it seems more flexible. And leave it like that. And leave it like well, that. Well, Bartok my-
0: Contrast, there's, you use two violins with the clarinet, piano, and violin. You leave one violin on the chair, which is tuned a certain way for a particular passage because there's no time during the piece to tune it. I didn't know And also, it would make it sound funny. Bartok contrasts. And for cello, we we play often the fifth Bach suite with the tune down, the A tune down, um, which gives a more hollow sound. And that's, uh, but I wouldn't play that first and then tune it up and play the rest of the concert because it would be unhappy. Also, Kodai solo sonata, Zoltan Kodai. That's uh, escortatura tuning as well. Um, And Pincus recently played a piece by Tartini with the Royal Philharmonic, where he had to tune his fiddle down, and he ended up getting an alternate fiddle.
1: So um, are there mountains yet you wanted to climb with this music? Is there a place you're trying to get to still that you've imagined with the plane or, or the kind of instrument you want to play? Those I'm, are not, two questions. I'm not
0: looking any further for another cello. I have a sort of a mythological fascination that I want to have a Matteo Gafriller cello. Um, But I think I've been able to get that type of a sound out of the Testori. So I'm not really, I'm not as obsessed with wanting to have a Gafriller. And I have played a few and I was like, yeah, they're okay, but I love my cello. So why bother? (laughs) And um, it sounds good. When I hear it on a recording, it sounds what I, imagine it sounds like. Whereas when I used to play the weebie, I have a sound in my head that I think I'm producing and then I, it didn't, I didn't hear it on the recording. And I, I found it sounded too nasal um, and not deep enough. But I don't think it was, it, it might have been the cello limitations of the wood isn't as old. But I really hear my sound. I know it's my sound when I hear myself on the radio, I know it's me. So that's, that's good.
1: Yeah. And so musically, any place you're trying to, pieces you want to play that you haven't gotten to play yet? Well, or? the
0: pieces I'm commissioning are the ones that haven't been created yet. That's very exciting. Um, we're going to be commissioning a double concerto by an American composer. So that's um, soon to be announced, um, hopefully. So those, those sorts of things, like new collaborations with a living composer, which I grew up with my father, so... Um, it's not a daunting idea to me. And the process where <clears throat> a composer is writing something and that you can sort of converse as they're writing it, I don't want them to just write it and give it to you. Here you go. No. That's, it should be a um, conversation during the process. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to that. And
1: How often does that happen where musicians themselves uh, commission the pieces?
0: Quite a lot. Yeah. And
1: and to history, has that been the case?
0: Yeah. I mean, um, well, for example, Rostropovich, all the Prokofiev and, I mean, he had 10 concertos written for him. Shostakovich, two Shostakovich concertos, Prokofiev Symphony Concertant, the Sonata. Um, I don't know if Shostakovich wrote the Sonata for him, but uh, Dutia, um, Britain, uh, so many. I mean, Slava was amazing for that, having really put um, the cello on the map as a solo instrument
1: well uh, Bill monocle really does we we interviewed uh, Bill monocle who's quite the expert in baroque instruments oh, and had I don't a shop know that that is, so. and had a shop in New York for many years and it's just recently retired and uh, he, he really puts the whole thing you know you have the musician it's all about the musician they mm-hmm. have an idea in their head and they want it to happen and then they use this instrument to make it happen and then a, they get a composer says well I'll compose for it and then the composer puts something in there that well I don't I can't do that
0: it doesn't even work yeah
1: right so then they go to the the luthier uh, and they <laughs> say well I want to be able to play this what can you do you know well we can do this we can you know this will enable you to to get that and how's that well I'm trying to understand you know maybe it's the changing in the technologies of the strings or what was possible what you could do in terms of normally, instrument. it's a
0: question of if the chord will line up. A composer will often write a, a chord, four notes across, and you don't have enough fingers to reach that particular combination of notes. Sure. So that has to be rewritten. The luthier can't do anything about that. Right. Exactly. So and I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, I have to. I have to revisit the interview because he really goes into quite detail. Oh. you know what. Um, Uh, what the instrument would would be able to have to be able to do, how far up maybe the neck you would be able to play, Mm -hmm. Um, what capabilities that they can begin to build into the instrument uh, because they're trying to deal with what the composer's coming up with Mm. and then the player. So you have this kind of three-way thing going on constantly. I'm not sure what
0: that's all about, actually. Hmm.
1: Hmm. I'll send you a copy of it. you see if you make (laughs) any sense of it? Yeah, Yeah, because, I mean, there have been changes. Well, you you take like with – um, last night uh, with Pincus playing uh, without a shoulder rest. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really quite interesting. And, um, again, that's his instrument and in how he approaches his playing with it. But apparently it gives it a very different sound. I was watching his positioning with the violin mm-hmm. compared to Dima holding his up you know, much closer to his ear up on, mm-hmm. on his shoulder and how different the character of the sound was when those, they were playing together. Well,
0: that's not necessarily the shoulder rest, though. That could be the fiddle. And, that's the fiddle and the player.
1: Yeah. Uh, who was talking about it? I, I don't know whether it was Dima. I'm, now I'm kind of I'm trying to think about it. Oh, I know what it was. I was talking to the guy last night who did the uh, recording of the concert. Okay. And he's been recording. He's there. been contracting with the symphony for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And uh, he definitely had this one particular person who used to use a shoulder rest was a very good player, young player. Mm -hmm. And so he said there was a chance they had improved a little bit in this amount of time, but they stopped using the shoulder rest. And he was using exactly the same mics, the same setup, same location. Mm -hmm. And he said it was a fundamentally different sounding Mm -hmm. instrument. And uh, that that was the conversation we had last night that had come from me mentioning this. No, that
0: makes sense because it's the same player and the same violin, but you can't compare a violinist with the shoulder rest to another violinist with I mean, they are still their own entity within whatever their yeah. stuff is. But Pincus is a definite advocate for no shoulder rest. And he teaches his students that way. He why, gets them to is, remove it. I, can't, I don't want to explain it incorrectly, but I should okay. know this actually. Um, freedom of the body, less stiffness, um, less being held there by the shoulder rest. I think that's the concept
1: anything about your own technique we'll we'll finish here but your own technique that you've discovered that is is something that really works for you or that you would recommend when you teach your master class what what are you what are your
0: well it's a lot of cellists are very tight because we have this large instrument you're not quite sure where to put it so i mean actually there's a there's a, a cellist in the greensboro symphony who's extremely tall And I was teasing him after the first rehearsal. I said, are you sitting on a podium? Because, you know, your podium's not supposed to be bigger than my podium because I'm the soloist, you know, I'm being silly. And I said, well, actually, you are very tall, aren't you? Where do you put your knees? Because if you sit with a cello, I mean, you're going to bang into your knee if your legs are too long, because I have taught students who are very tall and they don't know where to put everything. So they have to, he says, well, I have a hydraulic adjustable chair. So the chair is very high. So in order to get a right angle of your knee to your bum, I mean, if your legs are long, the knees are up. So you can't put the cello there. So, I mean, I've sat kids on, you know, phone books and things to show them because then it becomes more relaxed. I find cello a very um, natural, well, I'm basically born with it, (laughs) right? But cello, I mean, we sit very straight, very right angled, very straight back, and then place the cello into our body, into the nook of our body and we're straight. I, I decide, I mean, I think we're straight. Our shoulders are relaxed down. I look at a violin player and they're all turned in the left elbow. I mean, I don't know how they do it. That seems very unnatural to me. <laughs> it's just not square. Like I'm just sitting here and then I raise both arms, but, um, a lot of cellists do get very, um, tendonitis and necks, neck problems and, you know? Shoulder problems, yeah. This is, I think, it's the the relaxed way of sitting. Yeah, I talked to, to
1: Daryl Anger about playing the violin, and he was saying it's a very unnatural natural thing to do. Seems First to of all, your arms are up above your heart, mm-hmm. so your you know a lot of heart blood flow has to go up there. You know how fatigue oh, that's a good our arms point. get. You know
0: they say conductors live longer than anyone else because their hands are above their heart.
1: That so, keeps the heart strong?
0: Well, because that's their sort of cardio, I guess, because the hands are in moving and it's above the heart. I've, i read an article about it once. I said, Okay, honey, you're good, so keep conducting. <laughs> so although you have this unnatural violin that we're playing, but if you conduct, you then <laughs> it seems good. Does
1: he use a baton? Yes, he does. Okay, yeah. Well, thank you. Is there anything else you'd want to say about the cello that
0: cello's fun? like a human voice, it has the largest range. It can be a soprano and a bass and a baritone and an alto, and um, that's why it's better than the violin. Ha 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 ha!
1: <laughs> well, I think the violin is really quite high. <laughs> yeah, for it's, the exact for high. the human yeah. voice. Yeah, yeah.
0: I see that. I say they have C string envy because we have a C string, and I don't have E string envy, just for the record. <laughs>
1: Well, again, back to Daryl Anger. He has these five-string violin now that mm-hmm. he plays, and he loves it. Uh, and he knows it's not quite the same as having a viola. Yeah. But he said, but you get so used to that intimate relationship at first, which is very difficult. Uh, we talked about uh, hearing loss for some yeah. soulless oh, violinists because yeah. that thing's right there. And it's, and if you've got a good instrument that really projects, your, your, your ear is getting a big dose of yep, it.
0: Yep, our left ear. I have yeah. hyperacute hearing. I had it tested at the psychology department at a university um, to do with sound and, and hearing. And I, So I had the, the, the beep thing, you know, where you push the thing if you hear anything high. And she said she not ever tested someone with hyperacute on both sides, the low and the high, because you would think I would hear the low because I have a C-string, but not so much the high, but I heard the high as well. So that's good. So far, so good.
1: There's <laughs> a fascinating story that was done with a... He was a uh, producer uh-huh. uh, with the Beatles. And this is a story that Paul McCartney used to tell.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, he tested the Beatles for the same way. How high up can you oh, hear really? and how low okay. can you hear? And it turns out they had exceptional range. They really did, mm-hmm. outside the normal. And uh, then he wound up telling them a story about how, in fact, when you get down at a certain level, mm-hmm. really down low, um, th- that if you have a constant vibration that you can't really, most people don't hear.
0: Right, like a rumble. Uh,
1: It's like a rumble. It makes you very anxious. It's a very uncomfortable feeling. It almost makes you queasy.
0: Oh, like tinnitus. Well, it's... Where you have a ringing in your ear. Yeah, that'd
1: be up high. That's very bad. Yeah, oh boy. That'll make you crazy. Yeah. But this is very low. So it's really below most people's hearing. And 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 somehow it it came up in the conversation because of their range of what they could hear. So what he said at that point was he said, uh, this is something that Joseph Goebbels understood very well. And before Hitler would come out to give a speech in one of these big auditoriums, they would run this pitch, a constant pitch in the speakers, but no one was really hearing it. But it would make everyone anxious and not feel very good. And they'd all be waiting and waiting and not feeling good. And as soon as Hitler came on the podium, they'd turn it off.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: (sighs) And then everybody would feel this euphoria because, oh, that has gone. But they wouldn't realize it was a great leader. Oh my later. gosh,
0: that's amazing. Isn't that? That's like the oxygen that's piped into Vegas. <laughs> well, well they, put, they pipe in oxygen to all the casinos and there are no windows. So you never know what time it is. And oxygen keeps you awake.
1: I had no idea. Yeah. I was at Vegas once where they have oxygen bars outside. Yeah, 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 And I always thought that was a little...
0: I mean, I may be wrong. I just heard this, but it makes some sense. I mean, you just... Because if you're there, and I mean, I don't gamble, but you see that people are all night, all night, all night, and they're not tired. Maybe it's the oxygen being piped in there. It's kind of clever.
1: Make perfectly good sense. Right? If I were in a casino. <laughs> um, I've had this conversation with people about technology and all the different ways that it can play into the way we make music. Mm-hmm. From click tracks to auto-tuning, to carbon instruments,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know the cello that Yo-Yo Lewis Ma played during the inauguration, Clark, or yeah. yeah. So what have what's you seen thoughts? the
0: scrubbing version of that by the way?
1: What, no, what is The this?
0: scrubbing version of the inauguration of Obama, no. where the clarinetist Tony McGill from the New York Philharmonic and and Yo-Yo played. Um, the, do you know what scrubbing is? It's where the where um just look it up. Scrubbing Obama Inauguration. So it they'll take the video of someone playing and then they'll put a different track on it. So it sounds really bad. So it's that one's particularly funny because every time Yo-Yo plays everything, and you know he's smiling and then you hear and then Obama looks and then there's sort of silence, and you hear just the wind. And then you look back, and the clarinet goes, eh! And they all look really serious. It's quite funny. You should look up Pink Zuckerman scrubbing also. That's very funny. He does an interview. He talks about how beautiful the sound is of this, this violin. And then he's like, oh, I mean, that's the, the history of it. And it was so gorgeous and, and, and beautiful. And then he puts the bow and he goes, Eah! it's really funny. I know I got off track. What was the question? Technology. Oh, yeah. Well, have
1: you tried any of the carbon instruments? Yes.
0: Which yeah, they're pretty. They're loud. They lack depth, though. They lack the yeah. It's good for you know outdoors.
1: Do you and own a carbon bow?
0: I do have a, a carbon fiber bow. Actually, I think I gave that away to a friend of mine because she was doing the Camino trek in Spain. So she, I gave her that bow. Um, I have a Yamaha silent cello, which you can plug in. That's what the two cello guys use. Um, it's like a stick. And I use it for the beach. When I go to the beach, I put it in the golf uh, container, and um, I just throw it in the plane. So, <laughs> so I have something to wiggle my fingers on. Yeah. But that's kind of fun if you, with an amp, you know, pretend I'm in a band or something. Do Improvise you ever do
1: crossover home. stuff with other
0: no musical genres? Really. You, don't, you well, know, I have done some, but nothing yeah. to really mention. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Me too. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project, to listen to additional podcasts, and perhaps send us a note and tell us what you think of these podcasts, you can visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And I will finish with a quote from the singer Wayne Newton When I die, I'd like to come back as a cello.